So this um, will last about an hour and a half, um, and uh, the way it will work is roughly for the next hour, I'm going to ask Brett questions, and he'll answer, uh, and then we'll have half an hour of opening it up to you. Um, and uh, I'm rather excited by this because it's an opportunity of taking the gloves off and asking one of the country's leading psychoanalysts all the secrets of the trade. Um, so before I start asking Brett some questions, let me just tell you a little bit more about me so you know where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm, I don't work in mental health at all. Uh, I'm a TV producer. Uh, I have a real fascination in, in psychology and psychotherapy, um, but it's from the position of uh, relative ignorance. Uh, uh, having said that, uh, because of my fascination, which goes back quite a few years, as an undergraduate, I was drawn to psychology and philosophy, but it was in a university, it was at Oxford, where the very mention of Sigmund Freud was totally unacceptable. He was the arch pariah, uh, and psychoanalysis was heresy. Uh, and as a 19-year-old, it made them very, very attractive. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that fascination has continued. Um, uh, and, and why this is exciting for me this evening is because it's an opportunity to be able to ask you all the questions that I would like to find out, and I hope that people here would like to find out too. Um, so it's going to be, because I'm not a mental health professional, it's going to be uh, very straightforward, basic questions. Uh, and, and I would encourage you in the last half hour of the session to, to ask if you are some of you mental health professionals and you have more sophisticated questions that I'm able to ask, please ask them and, and I will encourage you. So let me start off, Brett, by asking you... Um, the most basic, basic questions, really, is what is psychotherapy and what is psychoanalysis and what is counselling and how are they all different? You've begun with the very hardest question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. but, but I will do my best. I, I think, although this may, may anger my colleagues, I think I'd, I'd like to begin by saying that at one level, the similarities among psychotherapy, psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, counselling, uh, the similarities are far greater than the differences. Yes, of course there are differences. There are different courses of training. There are different certification bodies and so forth. But the best people in all of those different hats, and it is a sadness to me that we do have so many different hats in the mental health field, what, what, what I think links us all together is a recognition that when somebody is absolutely suffering in deep distress, depressed, anxious, inhibited, unfulfilled, often suicidal, often mad, we do know that when one puts one's sorrow into words, when one talks about it, in the presence of somebody who is actually very experienced at listening to that sorrow, trained to listening to that sorrow, and adept at responding, the anxiety lessens. The temptation to act out in ways that are self-destructive or destructive to other people minimizes. Symptomatology reduces in intensity. And I think what links 
psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, therapy of all its persuasions is that these are all modalities that practice what Sigmund Freud called more than 100 years ago the talking cure, the Redekur in German. Literally that by talking, talking is a very very powerful instrument. Uh, But not only talking, the talking from person A has to be accompanied by very profound listening from person B, as well as very profound understanding. Because you can talk to your best friend, but they might have exactly the same problem and might try to upstage you. So you could go on a rant about how ghastly your mother is. Uh, and in most friendship conversations, which are two ways, uh, you don't know how lucky you are. Mine is, <laughs> mine is a real nightmare. But that might be relieving and helpful to a certain extent. But that won't give you a transformative experience of your relationship to your mother. So I often describe psychotherapy in shorthand as a one-way conversation between two people, because it is the talking cure, but we are only listening to the patient's story or the client's story. They are not listening to ours. It's an unusually intense, intensive, focused, rigorously focused conversation just on that one person. So how do you know, Brett, that when one of your patients is telling you about uh, a serious problem for them, and you're giving them insights that you are being helpful to them rather than confirming the very thing that has brought them into your practice in the first place. Yes, another another very excellent and, and very challenging question. We we try, I think, above all, not to offer directive advice. We're we're often pressed to offer directive advice. And when one is overwhelmed by anxiety, something that that every practicing therapist knows, is that anxiety is a remarkably powerful tool at attacking one's capacities to think. If you are under siege mentally, or under siege from an external trauma, it is impossible to think creatively, calmly, intelligently. So often the people who need to do the best thinking are in the worst position to do that because their minds and bodies are in such a such an overwhelmed, such a traumatized state that they can't do the creative thinking. So, for example, if somebody does not know whether to remain in the ghastly marriage in which they have been existing for many years, should I leave my husband, should I leave my wife, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, should I kill myself? Should I not kill myself? People who, who teeter on the brink of, of suicide. Uh, we are not in a position as, as therapists to say, yes, your wife really is a nightmare. I think you should leave her. Uh, we do sometimes offer a view that if somebody is in a really endangered state, we, I think most of us, if not all of us, would want to be in the first instance and in every instance on the side of life. So we would do all that we can to, to prevent somebody from committing suicide and help them, help them know whether it is the, the sane part of their mind that is wanting to make their decision or a very destructive part of their mind that is doing so. But we, we don't give advice. But what we do is we offer an opportunity, a space, a very big space, a very regular space. It's 50 minutes long. How many of you have a 50-minute conversation with anybody else where nobody is interrupting you? It's very interesting. I, I, I taught for many years at, at the 
uh, Royal Free Hospital around the corner teaching psychology to two young medical students. And one of my colleagues there, uh, Dr. Margaret Lloyd, the former uh, professor of general practice at the Royal Free, did a very interesting study. Uh, anybody want to take a guess after how long the average GP interrupts the average medical patient in the average GP consultation? Just take a guess. Thirty seconds. You have a very, very fine understanding. <laughs> the average British GP will intervene after 14 seconds of meeting the patient. Now, if you come in gushing blood, you might want to intervene uh, and, and more than just ask questions at that point. But when somebody comes to, to my room to, to speak to me, I introduce myself, and often I nod my head or extend my hand as if to say, Please, tell me what brings you here. And then I shut up, and I might not say anything for 20 minutes. It would not be unusual to just sit and listen, and you would be very, very surprised at how easily people can talk and narrate a very big story, sometimes uh, 40 minutes without a pause. Uh, we, we, I try not to let somebody talk for the whole of the session without giving them something back. But people have a desperate need to talk. In our, in our culture, we are interrupted constantly. So the kind of conversation that we facilitate, it takes place between two people, but it's focused entirely on the other person. They learn nothing about my life, my struggles, my anxieties, my private life, my professional life, absolutely nothing. We, we are focused entirely on you. So even if a patient comes in after a long Christmas recess and says, did you have a nice Christmas? I will say, tell me how you got on over the month of December. Yes. And I think ultimately people appreciate it. It's not what you do in a social situation. In a social situation you say, yes, you know, we, we built a, an igloo in, in the backyard out of snow and everybody had a great time and so forth. But this is a very, very particular focus that we are offering. So we don't give advice, we listen. And then when we do come in with words, we are trying to formulate something about the patient's experience of their mind that they may not have thought about consciously themselves. What is the research that shows that what you do in your clinical practice is more effective than someone just chatting to their friends or they go and see the GP and the GP says, I'm going to give you a cost-effective solution to your problems. Here are six hours with a cognitive behavioral therapist and they'll sort you out. It's good value for money. You'll be right as red at the end of it. Um, or even have a course of a dozen sessions with a counsellor. How do you, as a, a psychoanalyst, say, believe me, what I can offer, which may last several years, and it may involve uh, more than one session a week, it could be even three or four, uh, how do you justify that to the patient? I think people who come to see a psychotherapist come uh, from a variety of sources and, and with already uh, an immense amount of knowledge under their belts. I, I think very few people just pitch up at my office door and, and ring the bell. 
so, so most people will have done some research, will have been referred either by a doctor, uh, will have been referred by a lawyer. I, I don't know if it's w- widely known how frequently divorce lawyers send uh, people to see psychotherapists. I, I have many colleagues who are divorce lawyers, and they say, you know, Mrs. X came in to see me, uh, having discovered that her husband has three other wives in three other cities, and she feels her entire life is a lie. She wants to die. She's utterly devastated. And she spent the first hour and a half of our legal meeting in tears, and I couldn't get a word in edgeways, and I had to charge her £500 to listen to her cry. So the divorce lawyers are starting to realize, actually, there are times when one might need psychological help first or in addition to, so that the lawyer can then mediate, plan a strategy, do whatever it is she or he has to do. Uh, So some people are sent to us. Some people are even sent uh, as offender patients, people who've committed crimes, by the courts or by the probation service. Uh, But many people are already in this day and age really quite sophisticated. Many have done their research. Uh, They might have had a, a relative or a friend who has had a good experience of psychotherapy. So they've done their homework and they know something about what it is that they might be finding. Uh, And other people are uh, perplexed and and curious and don't know necessarily what kind of therapist they've come to see. I think think the biggest dilemma confronting uh, the public now in contemporary Great Britain and in other Western countries is not so much what accent of therapist you see. We have Freudians and Jungians and Kleinians and Winnicottians and Bolvians and so forth. I I think that's less important than whether one sees a psychotherapist who offers long-term open-ended therapy as opposed to short-term time-limited therapy, what is often known as cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, I'm sure you've all come across CBT. These are very, very, very different creatures indeed. Now, if you go to, let's say, your really grotesquely out of shape and you weigh 40 stone and you go to your personal trainer at the gym and you say, I want to get in shape, and the trainer says, six sessions, just come to me for the next six sessions and we'll have you, you, know, we'll have you looking like David Beckham. You, you'd, you'd have to be a fool to engage a a trainer like that. (coughs) Now, if you were just one and a half pounds overweight and you were trying to fit into your ball gown for the Christmas party and you just needed to lose a tiny bit of weight and somebody said, okay, let's do six intensive workouts in the gym, you could probably lose the weight, fit into the dress and sparkle at the party. What people need very much depends on what kind of work they're trying to achieve. For some people, one session with a short-term cognitive behavioral therapist might really help to untie a knot, might help to unravel something, might be extremely helpful. Not everybody requires intensive psychotherapy. But in my experience, most people who come to us are coming not because they've broken their fingernail, not because they don't know which necktie to wear to the board meeting, but they are deeply, deeply confused about their lives. 
often, as I said, to the point of not knowing whether they want to live or whether they want to die, whether they want to remain a banker or give it up and go motorbiking through the Gobi Desert, uh, whether they want to give up religion, which has been drummed into their heads since early childhood, uh, whether they want to remain in a heterosexual relationship if they feel pulled into homosexuality, or what have you. I mean, major, major sources of difficulty and confusion, or people who come with profound inhibitions. And I've been trying to be a great novelist for 30 years, and all I do is stare at the computer, and I've never been able to write more than a paragraph. These are people who have spent 35 years desperate to be creative and unable to produce even a paragraph, let alone a published novel. In my experience, six meetings will not help unravel these lifetime deeply, deeply entrenched, internalized character structures and patterns of symptomatology. So the the kind of work that I'm trained to do, the kind of work that I'm most interested in doing, and the kind of work that people come to see me for, is what we would call deep-seated characterological work, rather than sort of brief uh, symptomatic relief it's, it's really, it would be the equivalent if you went to, to, to see a personal trainer and a dietitian and a, uh, you know, a, a physician of, of really making sure that you're eating your vegetables, lots of kale, exercising six hours a day, getting eight hours of sleep. It's the psychological equivalent of, of the full health care package. And it's open-ended. And people often ask, well, how long will I have to be here? And it is a question that we, we never answer. So there's no expectation that you'll be here for any particular period of time. You can come as long as you find it useful. And uh, we have some colleagues of mine in the audience tonight. Uh, we each have different practices, so, so not everybody may work in this way. But when somebody is either referred to me or seeks me out, I say to them straight away that <coughs> to enter this kind of psychotherapy is, is a big deal. It's, it's the psychological equivalent of buying a house <laughs> or, or, you know, getting married, something like that. It's a very, very profound, very intimate, very personal, very intensive relationship in which both parties are investing an enormous amount. And I always say we cannot come to any decision about whether this is for you after one meeting. I generally meet people on four successive occasions spaced out over four weeks. We call these preliminary consultations. I need to have an ample opportunity to really hear as much as I can about the patient's current life circumstances, about their wider social network, about their working lives, about their private internal lives, their creative life, their sexual life, uh, as much as I can come to learn about their family history, going back uh, as many generations as as we can can possibly archive uh, for the patient, so I need to know about that. I need to have an experience of how the patient responds to the psychotherapeutic process to find out actually can they make sense of some of my interpretations and attempts at understanding the material that they bring. But I think above all, they need to have four weeks in which to assess me. They need to know whether I have the capacity to be supremely reliable that if their appointment is at 2 p.m., that I will be there exactly at 2 p.m., buzz them in when they come, rather than rushing and say, oh, so sorry, I had to walk the dog, and oh, I forgot, or I double-booked. 
you never want to see a psychotherapist who has double booked, because if you're double booking somebody in mind, you're giving the patient very profound evidence that you cannot hold that person in mind. So they need to check out my reliability, my professionalism, and to be perfectly frank, my intelligence, both my emotional intelligence and my cognitive intelligence. So, so we do a very intensive two-way assessment process, which is very different than medicine, where you don't often have the luxury of assessing your surgeon. If you're very ill, you take whichever surgeon is there in A&E, and you're grateful that there's someone with more surgical knowledge than, than you. So it's a, just, just thinking about embarking on it is already a big deal, a very intensive process. Because it's open-ended, when someone starts seeing you, uh, by its very nature of describing this intense, you know, albeit one-way relationship, doesn't the dependency grow and grow? So the therapy can run for years and it could become harder and harder for the patient to ever recognise that they've reached a point where they're sufficiently cured and it's time to move on. Um, I suppose what I'm asking is, is there an internal mechanism that allows you to say at some point, that's it, we shouldn't carry on indefinitely, you've had your time with me, now you're better off flying the roost and going your own way? The length of treatments on records of how long people actually stay there. It's a very interesting question, and it's, 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 it's one of the most frequently asked questions, and I think it is one of the most frequently asked questions, because A, it's a source of great interest, and B, it's a source of great anxiety. People come into this process and, and don't know how long they're going to be there. And for some, that's a great relief, because for people with many, many experiences of abandonment or early loss or bereavement of one kind or another, it's a great relief to think that they're not being rushed because they've had so many important people die on them. Uh, but other people are often really quite frightened. You know, will I, will I be here forever? Uh, some people uh, are in psychotherapy for less than one session because they actually never show up for their first appointment. They're just, they're just too frightened. And, and partly, I think that is a result of the fact that it is frightening to think about confronting your inner problems, your inner anxieties, what you might discover about yourself. You might actually come to discover that you live with a volcano of fury inside of, 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 of your bosom. And uh, everybody else in your life knows it, but you don't know it, and you can't manage it. Uh, everybody else might know that you suffer from pathological grandiosity and you have no space in your life to give anybody else intimacy and then you wonder why nobody has come to your Christmas party. Uh, everybody else knows why they haven't come to your Christmas party, but you don't. So people often have to learn very uncomfortable, very ugly pieces of, of insight about themselves. And I think that frightening aspect is a very good reason why people don't come. I think another good reason why people don't come, and that links very much to Carol Siegel's invitation for us to speak, is that as a profession on the whole, we have not necessarily been as adept as we could be at helping to, to introduce ourselves to the general public. I think partly we, we work in a profession which is intensely private. So there is a conflict between 
keeping the privacy of the profession and then also publicizing it. So some of us have been trying, I hope succeeding at least a little bit, in, in finding a way to talk about the work that in no way threatens the confidentiality of the individuals with, with whom we work. I'm not going to say, oh, today I saw, you know, a 33-year-old woman who dot, dot, dot. That, that, that is private information, and that goes with me to the grave. So, do you think that the therapy that you're talking about can help everyone? Are there, there are clearly a whole range of different people that come into your practice. Some people with really extreme mental health issues, and you've talked a bit about how some of your patients have been suicidal, um, and presumably patients at the other end of the scale, where life is pretty good, but it could be better. Um, so the question is, can you help everyone, or are there subgroups of people that actually you can help more than others? I think the, the, the honest answer is that the vast majority, if not more than the vast majority, of people who enter an open-ended psychotherapy with a very skilled and experienced, well-trained practitioner and who commit to this process over an extended period of time, they do find that their lives have become very, very, very deeply enriched, often in, in ways that have surprised themselves. I, a lot of patients will say, I had no idea how ill I was until this year because I've never experienced health emotional health, mental health, in the way that I am experiencing it now. So some people, I think, coming in don't even know what the possibilities and potentialities are. Uh, yes, one can't, one can't make uh, miraculous strides in everybody's life, and I think it is fair to say that, that not everybody achieves the same percentage of outcome, not that one can measure it easily, but, but I think most people who, who persevere with a dedicated practitioner uh, can do extremely, extremely well. What we do know from ample research data is that the longer one spends in open-ended therapy, the more intensive is both the symptom relief and the characterological transformation over time. There's, there's, there's no doubt about it that somebody who has had three years of ongoing psychotherapy finds themselves much more symptom relieved than someone who has had one year of psychotherapy, even though one year of psychotherapy can be, can be very effective. Uh, one of my teachers at the Tavistock Clinic years ago uh, had a, a lady who came to see him in her mid-90s, uh, we can talk about age and, and, and what the demography is and who comes to see psychotherapy. Uh, she had one year of psychotherapy in her mid-90s, and then she decided that that was enough, and I think she probably died a year or two after that. But she said it was the best year of her entire life. The first time in over 90 years that she had felt understood, freed of certain private internal ghosts, so it is a remarkably powerful encounter when it works well, and it often works extremely well. I've had people who I know who've seen psychotherapists who were sometimes... That sounds like I've got a friend who, and I'm actually talking about myself. This isn't me talking about... Um, uh, their anxiety is that... Um, the very thing that they love most about their life, that they are a great artist or a great writer, 
uh, or a musician. Um, but other things in their life aren't quite right. Their fear is that by going to see the psychotherapist, the very thing which the therapist is about to cure is the source of their creative energy that allows them to flourish as a novelist or an artist. Um, is there a possibility that with the best will in the world, you actually destroy the thing in the person that they're most proud of? Uh, your, your questions are all wonderful, and we hadn't we hadn't prepared uh, our specific questions beforehand. So, so Dan is is, is genuinely surprising with, with really engaging questions. This is what I call the Virginia Woolf syndrome. Back in the 1920s, as you know, Virginia Woolf suffered a very very long lifetime, uh, which ultimately led up to her her suicide and. In, 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 in the River Ouse, she had a long lifetime of suffering from very, very profound depressions. She saw the top mental doctors. They, they were not even referred to as psychiatrists at that period. They were often called alienists uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Alienists charged with looking after the aliens. Uh, a century ago, anybody with psychological problems was actually referred to in formal medical circles as an alien. Literally, that was how odd the symptomatology was. Freud, I think, really changed all of that because he said, actually, you're not an alien. You make a lot of sense. Given what had happened to you when you were three, no wonder you have this symptom now at 33. So, so Freud took the, the alien quality out of mental illness and made it much more ordinary. But Virginia Woolf was, was treated and mistreated by some of the so-called brilliant doctors of her era, and her depression never, never lifted. Now, what was extraordinary about Virginia Woolf is that in the 1920s, when Freudian psychology was just making a tiny inroad into British life, and then mostly in London, and mostly in Gordon Square in, in Bloomsbury, Nobody had better access to psychoanalysis in 1920 than Virginia Woolf did. A, she and her husband Leonard Woolf, who ran the Hogarth Press, were Freud's English-language publishers, so she actually got to meet Freud himself. Her baby brother, Adrian Stephen, was one of the very, very first people in this country to train as a psychoanalyst. Brother Adrian was married to Karen Costello, who was a psychoanalyst, and their next-door neighbors, uh, the Strachys, James and Alex Strachy, younger baby brother of the writer Lizzie Strachy, again, also among the first analysts. So Virginia Woolf was surrounded by psychoanalysts. They all tried to get her to go into analysis, and she refused, claiming that if I'm analyzed, the doctor will take my creativity away. So this is why I call it the Virginia Woolf syndrome. There is a real fear that, that if you, if you go into your, your therapy, your creativity will be taken away. I actually think that the real reason that Virginia Woolf found this so terrifying is that in the 1920s, analysis was much more rigid and formalized than it is now. And one could only go five times a week, and actually in the 1926 times a week, you went on Saturdays as well. And there was an expectation that you lie on the couch, usually with a male psychoanalyst. Now, we now know that Virginia Woolf had been sexually abused as a girl by both of her half-brothers, the Duckworth brothers, also in, in publishing. 
And I think to invite a sexually abused woman to lie down on a couch with a man seated behind her six days a week for an open-ended period of time was perhaps too terrifying an invitation. And Virginia Woolf never went into psychoanalysis. I, I think had I had the opportunity to work with, 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 with Mrs. Woolf, I, we would have started in chairs and we might have ended up still staying in chairs. At least she would have had the opportunity until she could satisfy herself that, that, that she would not be injured in any, in any bodily way. Uh, the research data, there's one very, very powerful study from the, the, uh, the Postgraduate Center for Mental Health in New York City about creative artists who went into therapy and they studied and literally hundreds of writers, playwrights, actors, singers, dancers, sculptors, violinists, you name it. And the vast majority reported that as a result of therapy, they actually got much better at their artistry. They were producing more quickly. Uh, they could write a novel in uh, six months rather than 16 years. You, you find that the rate of productivity speeds up and you can actually meet the deadline for your exhibition or your literary contract or what have you. Uh, the work becomes richer and deeper in many ways. It becomes more meaningful. You become less narcissistically obsessed about it so that, you know, you can actually go to your, your niece's christening rather than saying, oh, the sculpture is sculpture. I, you know, I can't possibly do anything or help my aged mother because the sculpture. Uh, you, you develop a much more human relationship to your artwork. So my experience is that, that people who are artistically creative actually become better artists as a result of therapy. And people who always wanted to be artistically and never could because you're talking with it, because you're analyzing the sources, both conscious and unconscious, of their inhibitions, they actually start to make their first baby steps and say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not Rembrandt yet, but, but I've drawn a stick figure. And from there, just as any child learning how to draw, great things can begin to unfold. So in my experience, yes, I think the creativity becomes, becomes much more powerful. And you don't have to be a great artist yourself. I, I, I have never progressed beyond drawing stick figures. I, I leave that to, to other people. But I think patients know that when they hear me engaging with their material, that I have a live and creative mind. And I think the identification with the, the intellectual vitality, the emotional vitality, and the aliveness and the interest in life, and the interest in the detail of life, allows patients who feel dead inside to begin to wake up and to maximize their own inhibited, frustrated capacities. Yeah, interesting. Um, let me ask you now a bit about the actual content, the essence of what uh, psychotherapy or psychoanalysis is. So we're sitting here in this extraordinary house where uh, Sigmund Freud and his family lived for several years after the war, yes. Um, and and just through there, as they were just downstairs, is the sofa where he continued to practice psychoanalysis here, which a few times I've seen it um, always gives me the shivers just because of its extraordinary sense of history. Um, what most people know outside psychodynamics, outside mental health, about Sigmund Freud often makes them feel perplexed about how he can actually treat people. And when I say he, I have the tradition of psychoanalysis can treat people. 
And by that, I'm talking about some of the more famous things about the notion of uh, sexuality being at the centre of everything. It's so central for um, his whole depiction of life. Um, the notion of the Edible Complex, um, the notion that uh, homosexuality is an aberration that's there to be cured rather than just something that's true to the person. There are so many aspects of Freud which 100 years ago, 120 years ago, when society was very different, could have been deemed acceptable, which now sit oddly with how we see the world. And so I suppose I'm asking you whether Freud in the form that he was practising psychoanalysis here is still valid, or whether it's had to evolve into another form of psychology in order to be useful today. It's mm. a very, very good question. Let me start with a tiny bit of historical context. Freud was in many ways a man of his time, born in 1856. I, I don't think he ever changed a nappy. He had uh, a household which was beautifully managed by a wife, by her sister, the spinster aunt who lived with them, uh, by approximately five servants at any given time. Uh, back in the late 19th century, uh, the cost of hiring help was, was really very minimal, and, the poverty in Vienna was so enormous that, uh, that most people were happy to have any employment at all. So Freud had a barber who cut his hair daily and, and shaved him when he didn't have a beard. Uh, there was a, a woman who took care simply of the coals and the coal fire. You know, he had a lot of help and support. And his wife, Martha Freud, uh, used to put the toothpaste on his toothbrush for him every morning and every evening. Partly this was the wife's role at the time, and partly she didn't want the great Sigmund Freud to have to take precious time away from writing up his, his theories to, with such mundanity. So, so at one level, uh, one might say he was a great male chauvinist pig and a man of his time and, and very unreconstructed pre-feminist male, and, and that might be quite true. I don't think it's widely realized that when Freud invited women who were in corsets, who were completely closed up in their bodies, who were not allowed to have a sexual life or a sexual mind uh, beyond a kind of compulsory intercourse with, with their husbands, the way that Freud worked with women in distress, and he had a very large number of women who came to see him as, as a doctor in the 18. 80s, 1890s, early 1900s. I don't think it's widely appreciated what the standard treatments for mental distress were at that period in time in Central Europe. Many women who suffered from what we would regard as hysteria, for example, or depression, any of the more traditional forms of, of, of the neurosis, uh, the most common treatment for any psychological disturbance was complete neglect. No, you, you got no treatment. You were just left to suffer in silence, to button your corset and get on with it. And uh, people then wonder, you know, when they look at the artwork of that period, whether it's Kokoschka or Sheila, and you see these ravaged, 
horrified faces. Uh, these are the faces of the people who've never had psychotherapy or any kind of emotional understanding. It's not just the fact that the world was on the brink of, of, of the, the Great War, uh, but, but the, the, these were the faces of anguish when the great composer of the time, Arnold Schoenberg, who was also in his spare time a painter, uh, composed his first self-portrait. It's, his face is completely blue. I don't know if you know the the blue-faced portrait of Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, it's completely blue. He looks miserable. And he had great reason to look miserable because his wife, Matilda, was having an affair with another Viennese painter, Richard Gerstel. Uh, nobody took these stories seriously. Nobody allowed people at that time to talk about these secrets. And it's not widely known or appreciated that in cases of more severe mental distress at that time, people were either institutionalized, and once you were institutionalized, you rarely got out, unlike nowadays where the government wants to get you out of hospital as quickly as possible. If you were sent to a psychiatric asylum in the late 19th century, you might go in and you might be there for decades. When I started working in, in psychiatric hospitals in the 1970s, it was very, very common to meet patients who'd been in as inpatients for 40 years on the same ward. 50 years on the same ward, and we do not, we simply do not have that today. And many of the women were actually subjected to horrific forms of genital surgery. They would have their ovaries removed as a treatment for depression or hysteria. They would have clitoridectomies and hysterectomies. I mean, I don't think this is widely known. And it wasn't only women who were subjected to this kind of barbaric, unnecessary surgery. There was a very, very well-known alienist in, in Germany whose treatment uh, during the 1880s and 1890s for men suffering from dementia precox, what we would now call schizophrenia, was surgical removal of the testicles. So there was what we would now regard as a real barbarity. And Freud really made an impact, a revolutionary impact in the history of medicine, as well as the history of human relationships, by saying, come into my office, lie down, take your shoes off, talk to me, and I'm not going to touch you at all. He really created hands-off medicine. And by taking his physical hands off, he allowed himself to get a much more hands-on approach to the inside of the patient's mind. So, so Freud was the male chauvinist pig who allowed his, his wife to do the toothpaste ritual for him. But he was also, in, in, in my understanding, a true pioneer in the, the egalitarianization of gender relations. And it's perhaps not accidental that Freud's very first publication, long before he uh, started uh, publishing in medical journals, long before he started with his psychoanalytical writings about dream analysis and his case histories and so forth, his first writing gig uh, was, was to earn money as the translator of the English philosopher John Stuart Mill's essay on the emancipation of women. Freud was, was charged to translate this essay from English into German. So he was, uh, we have an original copy in the library. It's, it's almost impossible book to, to find the, 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 in this country, Freud's, Freud's German translation. But it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful translation of Mill's essay on equality. And as you know, uh, John Stuart Mill was very keen that women should, should have the vote. Uh, uh, I think 80 years before women actually did acquire the vote. So Freud was engaged with a really important figure in the history of feminism, and, and in a very serious way. 
So that's, you've answered one half yes. of the question. Yes. The other half of the question <coughs> is um, about the, the kernels of uh, Freudian psychodynamics, um, like the things that so often we see as being essential psychoanalysis, like the Oedipus complex uh, and the centrality of sexuality um, and these other things I mentioned, and whether or not um, those aspects of psychoanalysis are still valid today, or whether actually we need to see them as products of uh, living in Vienna at the turn of the century, and that life has moved on, and therefore is the essence of Freudian uh, psychotherapy really relevant today? I, I think Freudian practice is very, very easy to caricature. Woody Allen has done a, a very, very good job helping us to, to, to do that, uh, often in a very funny way. And, and one can give a sort of brief encapsulation and say, ah, if you go to a Freudian, you're going to find out that you want to marry your mother and you want to have sex with your mother and you want to kill your father. And the only reason you're like this is because you were dropped on your head when you were three years old. And, and you know, it, it's very easy to caricature. And yet, like most humor, it has an element of truth in it. Because what the, the Freudian uh, psychology really helped us to understand is that adult character forms in the very, very earliest moments, days, weeks, months, years of childhood. Uh, that if you have a profound bereavement in early childhood, it will predispose you to a more long-standing endogenous depression. The people I have who, who lost parents very young, lost caretakers, or who had very dead parents, living parents, but they were felt to be dead because they themselves were very depressed. Uh, they, they have, these people have been depressed all their lives, and nobody has ever engaged with them, but actually their baseline way of living through the world is through uh, a lens of grey. I often find myself saying to patients, you're, you're telling me that, that it's almost as though somebody has taken all the colour out of your the picture of your life, and people immediately respond to that because it, 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 it feels right to them internally. So, so we, we emphasize childhood experience, so we do spend a lot of time really investigating, researching with the patient, wanting to know as much as possible as they remember about their childhood experience. We elicit and listen to and remember and engage and talk about their direct memories of childhood experience, but we also engage carefully in what Freud called the act of construction and reconstruction, where we don't necessarily know what happened, because we don't have film footage, we don't have diaries of, uh, you know, the first six weeks of your life, but we begin to formulate some hypotheses based on the way in which the patient relates to us in the consulting room. So, for example, one of the really, one of the really interesting features of, of seeing patients, as I, I work full-time in, in, in an office, so, so I'm seeing people all day, every day. And, and when you do see so many people, you know, somebody at 7 a.m., somebody at 8 a.m., somebody at 9 a.m., it is extraordinary. You are the same person, pretty much the same person. I don't think I change dramatically between 7 a.m. when my first patient comes in and 8.50 after my third patient has, has left, or 9.50 after my third patient has left. But if you hear the first patient talk about me, they might say, oh, my 
God, you are so wise, and nobody's ever helped me in this way before. Uh, the second patient comes in and makes no reference to me whatsoever and just gets on telling me about their life. And the third patient comes and says, you are a horrible, evil Nazi, and nobody's ever misunderstood me in the way that you have. And it is really extraordinary when you do see three people back-to-back in this way that you get a sense of how people have a great capacity to project what we would call their internal world onto you. You do become a canvas. You do become a blank screen. Because I suspect that between 7 a.m. and 9.50, I'm I'm not a genius and I'm not a Nazi. I'm an ordinary, (laughs) jobbing psychotherapist who's just sitting there quietly in a chair, listening, nodding my head, making occasional comments. But, But in the quiet of that space patients really bring the most private aspects of their internal life, their private mind, it it really wakes up, and then you can begin to see. And and with the patient who accuses you of being a Nazi, uh, you you then very quickly start to discover who were the Nazis in their own infancy and and how they want you to know about that that Nazism as a kind of psychological state. Sometimes we do work with, with survivors of concentration camps, so there are many still alive, but, but, but the patients help through the way in which they treat you as an object. They help to recreate their early world in a very powerful, very dynamic, very theatrical way. So, it must be odd being you, Brett. So, <laughs> you're, you're in your practice, and, and someone comes in and says, Brett Carr, you are simply the most intelligent, brilliant uh, man in the world. You must at some level, take that a little bit personally. In the same way, when someone comes and says, Brett, you are a brutal Nazi, you are Mengele personified, again, you must, not as a therapist, but as a human being, react to that and take it a little bit personally. Is it possible to put all of your normal personal instincts aside and just be a professional therapist and not take any of that to heart? It's very interesting because I've I've written quite a number of books over the years and you get a very similar reaction from book reviewers that you also get from patients because all the reviewers have read exactly the same book. They don't each get a different version of the book. The publisher sends out the very same book to every reviewer and one reviewer says, oh my God, this book changed my life. Another book says this book should. Another reviewer says this book should be banned. This is Nazi literature, etc., etc. Uh, and most people uh, don't make any mention of it at all. So, in in some ways, it's it's a reflection of the experience of our relationships in all kinds of contexts. That at work, you might have somebody who thinks you're wonderful and says, "Oh, you should have got the promotion," and somebody else who's you know trying to kick you down the the staircase. And most people are just relating to you in a more ordinary collegial way. So I, I, I think we become used very quickly as, as practitioners uh, to realizing that most of what is said to us, if not all of what is said to us, is often filtered through what we might think of as a transferential lens. So, yes, of course, if somebody says, you really, really help me, that was amazing, uh, you might you might have a private sense of, of, of joy. If somebody says, you are absolutely horrible to me and nobody's ever misunderstood me in the way you have, you would be very 
stupid not to then privately scrutinize yourself and review the last session and think, well, you know, was I yawning at the wrong time or did I, did I misremember? Did I think that they were the patient who had six siblings rather than no siblings? I mean, that would be a huge mistake to get something like that wrong. But part of the, the, the craft of sitting in the chair is that we are always listening to the patient, archiving what the patient is saying, but we're also scrutinizing our own private process to find out, you know, what our mood states are like. Uh, was that helpful? Uh, does that need to be talked about further? Was it, was it too helpful? Uh, and so forth. Was it too much information for the patient to be able to grapple with at that time? Uh, we, we, we think a lot about questions of timing, about when one raises a particular issue or responds to a particular issue. You know, it may be very provocative with two minutes left in the session on a Friday afternoon to say, you know, I never told you this before, but I think you're in love with your mother and you want to kill your father. You know, <laughs> we have to be very psychologically diplomatic in terms of how we, we engage with, with yeah. the, the material. Yeah. So, I, yes, I, I, I think you'd have to be a very unanalyzed narcissist to, to let a comment like that go to your head and, and walk out on the cloud. It's, it's, it's hard work. It's, it's physically and mentally exhausting work. And, and, uh, but work that, that over the long term is, is very, very profoundly satisfying because you see people moving from, from shadow into the light, if, if, if you like. So you talked about things like transference and you've referred to various other things that come into play um, when you're seeing patients um, and if you like all of that is in the area of you as a therapist and how you relate to them and how you're perceptive and how you pick up on the right kinds of questions to ask and how you listen but related to that is uh, psychoanalysis Freudianism as a way of seeing the world uh, and some people see it as a belief system and some people see it as a form of science if you like empiricism insofar as uh, Freud when he was writing his books drew a lot upon his patients uh, and from those was able to create a, a system of evidence or a system of, of uh, explaining the way that people are one of the charges that is often levelled against psychoanalysis is the belief system or the evidence system that Freud built up doesn't allow itself to be falsified. It doesn't allow questions to be asked of it, that it's a closed system, that it's non-empirical, uh, and that if it's non-empirical, how do we know it's actually valid? How do we put it to the test? You can test things in physics or chemistry can you really test things in the field of psychodynamics and if you can't how do we know that the body of knowledge is right and if we can't know for sure that the body of knowledge is right how do we know that the thing that is practiced as a therapy is valid there is again another Stereotype, and like many stereotypes, it may also be based on truth. That, that you know, if you contradict a Freudian practitioner, 
he or she will say, ah, you're resisting, you know. That's a, that, the fact that you don't believe that infantile sexuality exists is proof that this was a very traumatic feature for you, and, and therefore my theory is correct. And, and yes, there are some arrogant, we do have arrogant colleagues, there's, there's no doubt about it. The, the mental health profession is not dissimilar to the legal profession, the medical profession, the, the art world, the, the media world, one meets a very, very wide range of, of, of personalities. But I, I think you'll find that most really serious practitioners are people with a very, very open mind as Freud could often have an open mind. I mean, he certainly did have a dogmatic side. He was very keen, he had a lot of resistance to fight in a way that those of us who practice in the 21st century don't. It's now vaguely respectable to be a mental health professional. In Freud's time, it was considered uh, little more than, than prostitution. People would come up to Freud in the streets of Vienna on the Ringstrasse and, and, and accuse him of being a pornographer because he wrote cases and talked about people's sexual experiences, often sexual abuse experiences, in very direct, very, very frank language. He did not write in Latin, as many physicians of the period did, so that only then uh, medics and, and clergymen could read it. He actually used ordinary German language uh, to describe the genitalia, for example. And he had patients who had things done to their genitalia. So he had, he had a real honesty. Um, he, he was a good scientist because he said, you know what? If it turns out that all of these mental illnesses can be eradicated with a pill and biology solves it, then we can all go home early. He was absolutely open to that possibility. So I, I think you'll find that most people are really quite receptive and keen to know when therapy isn't working or when a psychoanalytical lens might not be particularly helpful. But having said that, it is also a very powerful lens. And there have been a lot of really, really good people who've been able to make contributions to the understanding of, of politics, political relationships, even political interventions. We have a, a, a wonderful colleague here in, in, in London who's been a long-term friend of the Freud Museum, Gabrielle Rifkin, who's trained in group psychoanalysis, and she takes political leaders from, uh, from parts of Israel and, and from different Arab countries, and she sits them round at a table. Uh, she goes out to the Middle East to work with them, and she says, listen, we cannot continue to keep blowing up our countries in this way. Let's see if we can talk out our differences. Now, to me, that is a remarkably creative application of the talking cure into, you know, a politically volcanic, deadly situation. So, so people are using this in very, 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 very creative ways. We have Dr. Dorothy Judd in the audience with us tonight who made really seminal strides in terms of bringing psychological ideas onto uh, child pediatric oncology wards. Nobody was talking to these children who were experiencing life and death and they needed a space and their families needed a space and somebody to help them survive this unbearable sorrow. So we have, we have a lot of really creative people who are trying to take this knowledge out in very non-dogmatic ways, saying, here are some ideas that I have. If you find them useful, so be it. Yes, you can get the people who sort of insist on hammering it home, but, but I, I find that doesn't get very far. It must be a source of frustration uh, as uh, 
someone who sees on a daily, weekly basis the success of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis that um, it isn't more widely accepted. And, and certainly when I go to, say, New York uh, or even Los Angeles, there's a sense in the air that uh, if you have a mental health issue, you go and see a psychotherapist, it will be helpful. There's still, and you may disagree, Brett, my sense is there's still a sense in British society, amongst some sections of society, of a resistance to it, a sense that it's inherently unscientific uh, or that it's something to be treated in a dubious way. So why do you think that is? Well, I actually think we've, we've made a great success of it. <laughs> uh, com- compared to where we were when I started out in the field, I've seen enormous, enormous shifts. If I can just summarize it, when, when I was a, uh, a young psychology student and I expressed uh, an interest to my teachers in doing Freud, I mean, one, one of my teachers was rather drunk at a cocktail party. He just absolutely spluttered and spilled his drink when I said I wanted to study Freud. He said, Freud, Freud, what rubbish. 50% of everything that he ever wrote is wrong, and the other 50% is just common sense, which my grandmother could have told you. That was, that was my first formal teaching introduction to, to Freud, and then he passed out. And, and in a way, that, that also gave me more of an interest, rather like your college experience, your undergraduate experience, to say, well... The, the, the fact that he, he was an eminent scientist, the fact that he was so vitriolically opposed to Freud did make me wonder, well, maybe there is something that's, that's quite, uh, quite kryptonite-ish here that we, we might want to investigate. But, but in the very, very early days when I was a psychology trainee and I told people what I did for a living, they said, oh, gosh, you, you spend your day with crazy people. Why would, why would anybody want to do that? There was a real sense of, of almost disgust, almost contempt that that you had a relationship to to people struggling with with, with severe mental illness. I, I'd say then ten years later, it was, oh, how terribly, terribly interesting. Yes, yes, it must be. You must do very good work for some very, very ill people. Um, ten years later, the sort of the, the cocktail party, dinner party chatter changed. It's like, oh, wow, you know, does it really work? And, you know, but I heard it didn't, but, but have you got, a, you got a card? You know, you <laughs> And then, ten years later, yeah. it's like, oh, you're a therapist? Okay, my aunt is a therapist, my uncle's a therapist, I'm training, what's the best college to go to, you know, can I make a living? It's just sort of charting my professional life over four decades. Uh, that's a very rough and ready summary. But, but I think we've made enormous strides. We now have in Great Britain, which is uh, admittedly a relatively small country compared to, to others, but we have approximately 20,000 practicing psychotherapists in Great Britain. That's not a small number of, of, of people. And I have to say that every time I go to a conference and meet colleagues who live outside of London, uh, you know, because I'm always looking for someone to whom I can refer to in in Gloucestershire or wherever, none of them has a vacancy. Uh, it used to be in the old days that you had to come to London and you had to come to Hampstead in London because there was nowhere else to go. But now it's really, really spreading and, and I can't find a, a therapist in Gloucestershire with a vacancy because people are starting to use the services. So, so actually, I think we've made a great success. Where we struggle, of course, is in terms of government funding. And that is a big and serious problem. And it is one that colleagues are tackling very, very vociferously. We now have, thankfully, for the 
for the first time in, 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 in history, we have not one, but two formally trained psychoanalytical Freudian psychiatrists who serve in the House of Lords, John Alderdice, Lord Alderdice, and Sheila Hollins, uh, Baroness Hollins. These are, these are two of the most distinguished British psychiatrists, and they are now serving in the Lords, and they are both actively campaigning for funding for long-term Freudian-style psychotherapy. And, and uh, various parliamentary working groups, my, my colleague at the, the Tavistock Centre for Couple Relationships, Susanna Absey, the chief executive officer there, has set up, uh, about five years ago, she set up the all-party parliamentary working group on intimate relationships. The British Parliament now sponsors such a group. And cross-benchers come, people come from the House of Commons, from the House of Lords, and they meet the <coughs> mental health professional. I had the privilege of going to present there one day, and I was terrified of presenting to, you know, a whole group of, uh, of, of, of peers and, and MPs. They could not have been sweeter, and they could not have been more interested in finding out what actually goes on in psychotherapy, and wanted to hear the difference in the research evidence between long-term therapy and short-term therapy. So I think we're actually doing not too, not too bad at all. Good to hear. Um, for someone who's seeking a therapist, a lot of it comes through personal recommendations. Um, uh, is there a, uh, uh, a system of, of registration so that for members of the public who want to know that they're seeing someone who's properly qualified, who's going to be value for time, uh, is there a body that they can go to, or do, does it basically require them muddling through and hoping they end up with the right person? I mean, this is where we could really be much better, and if, if people here have really concrete suggestions or recommendations or what you've learned from your own experience, please tell me, and I will, I will make sure that the, the right people get to hear about it, because it is, it is very, very hard for people often to find a good therapist, to be recommended to a good therapist. You know, if you happen to have an aunt who knows everybody and has, you know, the top gynecologist on her list and the top pediatrician, you know, there are some people like that who are just extremely well-connected and they always make great recommendations and they know the best place to get your hair done and the best place to buy a rucksack. Then, you know, embrace them and, 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 and check out their recommendation. But, but I think what we lack in, in mental health is the psychological equivalent of the community GP. Because if we need a specialist medical person, if we need an oncologist, if we need a pediatric surgeon, we don't have these people on our, on our smartphones where we can just call them. We go to the GP, and the GP serves as the central filter and say, okay, you need to see a pediatric oncologist and the local chap or Chapess is called so-and-so, and I'll arrange an appointment, and that's very, very good. Uh, GPs, on the whole, in my experience, are not very, very uh, adept at knowing how to navigate the mental health system. Uh, they, they will often refer people to psychiatrists or put people on antidepressants. We still have millions and millions of people in Great Britain receiving antidepressants as the first 
port of call rather than as the last port of call. So I think we do need much more education and much more collaboration with doctors, but we also need to find other creative ways to introduce psychotherapy to people. I had the privilege of, of, of serving for about six or seven years as, as the director of a small psychotherapy service which was run through the School of Life. Some of you may know this organization. and We put together a team of very trusted colleagues and people would ring up and we'd give people very personal recommendations. So there, there isn't a sort of absolute clear way of, of, of being recommended, uh, but but the, the, the good thing is uh, that you have the opportunity to meet somebody, and you have the opportunity to meet them again. You're not forced to work with the first person you're sent to, and you're not forced to work with them after you've seen them once. That, that's why that's why I offer people four consultations, so that they really have a chance to get to see how my mind works and whether they think I'm a blithering idiot or whether I make a great deal of sense. But I think, I think you're right. I think we do need more educational uh, opportunities. Having said that, we do have formal regulatory bodies. Uh, regrettably, we have at least five regulatory bodies for psychotherapists in Great Britain. And I, I don't think I will live to see the day, but I, I secretly wish that I could live to see the day when all five of these bodies will be amalgamated. We are now exactly in the same position that medics were in the 16th century, where you had barber surgeons who would cut off your leg, uh, you had physicians who would diagnose your illness on the basis of the smell of your urine, who practiced what was then called urinoscopy. Uh, you had apothecaries who would give you herbs from the local trees. You had the white witches who were the wise women in the community. Uh, and we are now a little bit in that position because we have the British Psychoanalytic Council, the United Kingdom Council for Psychotherapy, the British Association of Counseling and Psychotherapy, the Psychotherapy Section of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and the Psychotherapy Section of the British Psychological Society. All crammed with excellent people, but that is really horrifically confusing for members of the general public. And I do hope that in, in my lifetime I can be, I can, you know, witness a shift in that. And we are working, people are, are really working to try to, to bring much more collaboration among those different organizations. But those are the five official registration bodies for people who practice psychotherapy in one form or another, in one accent or another. Tremendous. Thank you, Brett. Uh, I, I just looked at the time, and having said that I was going to give a full half an hour question, it's now actually quarter past eight already. So let's, let me encourage you to ask Brett some questions. Uh, if there are no questions, I'll carry on asking him, but I'd love it if people here would like to put questions to Brett. Here in the front, first of all. Hi. Thank you very much for a great talk. I was just uh, wondering if you can let us know a bit about the difference between psychoanalytic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Uh, I don't know if everybody could hear. Our, our colleague here at the front said, uh, could I explain something about the difference between what is called psychoanalytic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis? Um, I, I can and I can't answer that question. I mean, all, the, all the questions, your questions, are all really terrific. Um, the, the, the simple definition is that psychoanalysis in its pure classical form is the practice of going to see somebody generally five days a week, sometimes four days a week, if you need a day off, or your analyst doesn't have an extra space on a Friday, where you lie on the couch, you free associate, uh, 
you talk about your dreams, you talk about whatever comes into your mind as unrestrictedly as possible. It's, it's generally considered the full whack. It's, it's the most of what you can get. In Freud's day, you went six times a week, and you lay on the couch originally for 60 minutes, got shaved down to 50 minutes over the years. In America, 45 minutes. Uh, so that, that's, that's just the, the physical structure of, of the traditional classical psychoanalysis. Psychoanalytic psychotherapy as, as a modality is generally a name that's given to people who come perhaps less frequently, less intensively, once a week, twice a week, or three times a week. Uh, but some of those people come and sit on, lie on the couch. Uh, some come more frequently. Uh, the, the, the line is, is often blurred. Some people will see people who are qualified psychoanalysts once a week. So are they, are they having psychoanalysis, are they having psychoanalytic psychotherapy from a psychoanalyst, or are they having psychoanalysis? It's, it's very complicated, and I would love, again, to see uh, an amalgamation so that we don't have uh, quite so many of these cumbersome differences. Uh, but the general rule of thumb is that psychoanalytic psychotherapy is the term that is used to describe once or twice a week, whereas psychoanalysis, you're more likely to be going four or five times a week. But a lot of people who come once a week say, I'm lying on a couch, I'm talking about my dreams, this is psychoanalysis. And different practitioners from different schools and different training institutions describe themselves and their work in different ways. So, so they are cousins, uh, they are opposed to one another, and they are the same all at the same time. Question of the back there. Uh, I'm sorry? Bodywork psychotherapy. Yes, uh, maybe there are people who can, who can talk about that better than I can. It is a particular kind of psychotherapy, bodywork psychotherapy, which does involve uh, touching the body. Uh, it's, it's not a form of, of, of psychotherapy that I practice or that I have any training in or experience in. So, so I'd rather let a, 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 a properly qualified bodywork practitioner talk about that. But Freud had a, a number of disciples who believed that just <coughs> talking about it was not always enough when the patient presented with very severe bodily aches. I suppose the most famous uh, representative was a man by the name of Wilhelm Reich, who would often see patients with very, very rigid bodies, and he would do very, very deep massage work. He would say, you know, all of your sexual frustration is manifest in your body, and, and no wonder you can't move your arm and, and your limbs are all twisted and your torso is twisted. He saw people in tremendously uh, convoluted spinal positions, and he did a combination of, of talking psychotherapy with this body work. Uh, there is a whole field of body psychotherapists who've taken that in more sophisticated directions, but, but I think that's probably all that I can say about it. Um, I have always been a keen practitioner of the hands-off approach because I, I found that there's an enormous amount that one can do just from listening and talking and, and interacting. But it's a, it's a good question and there's a rich body of literature around body psychotherapy. Yes, I wanted to ask you about medication. Um, you briefly touched on it as basically saying you thought it should be a last form of resort as a to a primary. Um, do you think we're living in a completely oversubscribed, addicted, medicated world? 
And in in answering that, in your experience clinically, and especially with some of your really bad sufferers, perhaps the suicidal ones, where is that space? Is there a space for medication? How do you view it? It's an immensely complicated topic. And, and I would like to think that I have a very open mind to it. I, I can talk simply from my direct working experience with people who come to see me. I would estimate that possibly 30% of the people who come to me are already on medication. And I would say that after a year of psychotherapy, perhaps 75% of that 30% organically weans themselves off of their antidepressants or anti-anxiety agents and finds they have no need for it. And I cannot think of a time in over 30 years of practice where I have felt it necessary to send a patient to a, a doctor to, to get medication or that they have sought that out. The, 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 the healing power of the talking and listening relationship is so profound that, that I find it works best without medication. That's not to say that if somebody comes in already medicated, uh, you try to get them off the medication, but you just allow the process to unfold organically. But that, that's my experience. Other colleagues may have different experiences, but, but I get a lot of people who come to me because <coughs> their medication has not touched them at all and their short-term cognitive interventions, behavioral interventions, have not really helped them. Now, I'm not pretending that mine is a representative sample. It's one, I'm, I'm, I'm pitching it only as, as one man's clinical practice. But yes, that, that's my experience. I'd say that, that most of my patients, after a year, start to wean themselves off under medical supervision of their antidepressants and, and don't miss them and feel, feel much more powerful and feel much more of a sense of agency because I think a lot of people who rely on their medication feel, ah, the medication is going to cure me rather than actually thinking that my active participation in my own therapy might be curative in and of itself. I find people off of medication are much more agentful. That's my experience. A very good question. Why do we have something called individual psychotherapy? Why do we have something called group psychotherapy? Having said that, we also have something called couple psychotherapy, where one comes with one's partner, and we have something called family psychotherapy, where you come with uh, with the wife and the kids and, and so forth. So there are there are there are many different arrangements, uh, ranging from the the very classical one on one. Uh, and that's pretty much all that Freud and his colleagues did for most of the first 50 years of, of psychotherapy. You had one uh, analyst and one analysan patient-client call, call that person what, whatever you like. Uh, group psychotherapy and couple psychotherapy in this country really developed out of the painful necessity of World War II. Uh, during the Second World War, uh, after, I mean, in the First World War, there was virtually no proper psychological treatment that was impactful for any of the many shell-shocked survivors. 
But by the time World War II had come around, uh, medical psychology and psychoanalysis uh, had already passed their 21st birthdays in this country. So there were not many, but there were still several hundred analysts. And all of these analysts were actively recruited to join the Royal Army Medical Corps in World War II. And they had extremely large numbers of men who had lost limbs, uh, their homes were bombed uh, back in, in Great Britain, uh, they lost half their men, they were involved in you know, all kinds of horrific uh, war-related trauma, they were forced to kill people. And these analysts, these psychoanalysts working in the Royal Army Medical Corps simply couldn't see all these men, far too many of them, on a one-to-one basis. And that was when a group of very, very pioneering colleagues started to develop what has now become known as group psychotherapy, that you get eight people in a room, and they're all talking, and they found it really surprisingly very effective. Uh, We have all these modalities on offer today. Very hard uh, for many people to know, well, should I go into a group, or should I go one-to-one? And there one does need the help and and the guidance of a qualified mental health professional or medical professional or social work professional to try to steer you in the right direction. Uh, uh, I'd need about an hour to give you a really good, uh, clear answer on how you make an assessment as to whether, uh, if if the person has uh, a, a need for help, whether you send them by themselves, with their spouse, with the kids or you put them in a group. And and different people have different preferences. Different people also have different needs. Sometimes group analysis, for example, is particularly helpful for people who are deeply lonely and where there is often a really, really uh, profoundly entrenched uh, inability to forge relationships. Some people come and seek the privacy, the sucker of one-to-one, because they are overwhelmed by people often by crazy people in their lives and they love the fact that it's just that person and the therapist in a quiet, quiet room with no disturbance from the outside world. They, they come to shut in the to shut out the, the outside world. Uh, I remember one of, my, one of my teachers always said, uh, much also depends on the sibling constellation. Uh, I, I, I don't do, I'm not trained as a group psychotherapist uh, although I have done some group work over the years but I, I did have the privilege of training with one of, one of our, our great group analysts, and she said, if somebody has come from a family constellation with more than five siblings, you never, ever, ever send them into group psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> There's more to say about that, but, but it, is, it is an option. It is an option available for, for people. And, and people have surprisingly different preferences. Some people actually prefer the company and camaraderie of, of groups. And, and there were even some early couple therapists who saw their couples in groups. So, you know, Mr. and Mrs. X or Mr. and Mr. X or, you know, they, you, you'd have four or five couples, married couples, all coming together in a couples group. And I've never done that, but apparently it was a very, very powerful experience. Uh, uh, Robin Skinner, the great psychiatrist who had worked famously with the actor John Cleese, he was one of the pioneers of of, of of group couple therapy. So we have lots of different options. A few more questions. Um, hi, I'm a psychodrama trainee and um, have had psychoanalysis myself for years. I wonder where you stand or what are your thoughts on action methods of therapy like psychodrama? Yes, I, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Uh, I don't know if everybody knows what psychodrama 
is. I don't know if you can give <laughs> a thumbnail. Thumbnail definition. You know, just just as there, I mean, you know, the, the traditional Freudian gold standard in inverted commas was the the individual patient coming five six times a week lying on the couch. But as I said, we now have group therapy, individual therapy, family therapy. But our colleague here is is reminding me uh, that we have what are also known as the creative arts therapies, where people can sometimes use art work as a means of engaging in contact with people. People can sometimes use music. We have a lot of music therapists. In fact, I started, I started out working in psychiatric hospitals on very, very empty, dreary back wards where the patient might have 50 minutes of psychotherapy a day, but nothing to do in the remaining 23 hours and 10 minutes of the day. And you had, you know, maybe 50 patients with four nurses. So you had patients in an enormous amount of isolation. And, and really out of desperation, as somebody who began his life as a, as a pianist, as a musician, I set up what, what I sort of call therapeutic music groups, literally just to get some of these very, very lonely people singing, singing songs of their generation. And people... Came, came alive, they came awake. Some came out of catatonic stupors to sing old 1890s musical songs, which, which I knew from, from my grandparents. So uh, the arts can be a very, very powerful way of, of engaging with, with people. It, it is one of the sort of uh, nice developments of, of the traditional psychological model. I'm, I'm a big fan of psychodrama and art therapy and music therapy and dance movement therapy and uh, sand play therapy, people who, who work with children or with adults by, by giving them a sandbox with, with toys and they, they, they describe their lives uh, by putting objects in the sand and creating pictures and that becomes their vehicle for talking about it. There are creative writing therapy, you know, there are, as you know only too well, there are so many ways of initiating a powerful conversation about somebody's private life. And I say, bring, bring it all on. Time for two more questions. I just believe that I'm going to go with the first part, which is that um, uh, how do you feel about the integrative slash humanist approach versus the psychoanalytical way of... Because I, I've been reading a lot of Yanom, mm. and he's talking about the here and now. He's talking about the healing relationship you know, that, the psych- that the psychotherapist provides to the client. Mm. It's often that connection that's missing in the client's life. Just mm. that, like you said in the beginning, just that person sitting there guaranteeing their reliability, their reliability. Mm. Yes, as I said at the beginning, we have many, many accents, and a lot of people are very, very keen to define themselves as coming from a particular school. And, you know, I would imagine that if the history of psychotherapy follows the history of medicine in any way, we are ultimately going to see in a few hundred years the eradication of all these different accents and schools. If you, if you meet a physician today, a physician will not introduce herself or himself by saying, yes, I'm a follower of Hippocrates, or I'm a follower of Galen, or Paracelsus. Uh, you're a doctor, <laughs> and, and you've, you've, you've incorporated all of these historical traditions, and you, you've also incorporated Lister's antisepsis, and you know of the importance of washing your hands. So uh, I'm, I'm a great proponent of drawing from as many different 
traditions as as possible. When I'm asked to to define myself, uh, I, I, I don't I don't rush to to say I'm I'm in this school or that school. I think of myself broadly as as a psychotherapist. I'm, I'm of course very very passionately drawn to to Freud and to his teachings and the people who followed directly in Freud's footsteps, but. I taught at uh, one of our leading integrative colleges for, for 20 years, at Regents College, now Regents University London, where we, we endeavored to train people who drew upon all these different traditions and had exposure to all the different, uh, the different theories and ideologies. So, so, uh, but isn't there a difference between just how you practice it? For example, um, you know, it, how you practice it is different from what you imagine a traditional psychoanalysts to do is just lie really quietly and there's like a almost like a hierarchy going on in the room and you know you feel like you're lesser than whereas uh, it's interesting a lot of people you know I use the couch I don't force people to use the couch it's there I'd say maybe half the people I work with uh, come and sit in a chair across the room and the other half work on the couch. I'm a big fan of, of the couch. I've never experienced it as, as really hierarchical in that way uh, and most of my patients, I think, have not experienced it as hierarchical. Uh, a lot of the criticism against the use of the couch is, ah, you're towering above the patient and, you know, uh, you're the doctor, they're the patient and uh, they're just in a lowly, prone position. Um, uh, I, I think of it more in a theatrical way, that actually you are there as the prompter in the prompt box, and the patient is the star of the show, and actually they are, they are fully on display. Their whole body and their mind uh, are on display, and all the focus is on them. All the spotlights are on them. The orchestra waits for them to begin. Uh, you're, you're there really as the kind of conductor down in the orchestral pit, uh, not as some great figure towering over people. So I conceptualize it in a, in a, very, different, a very different way. One more question. Oh, good, good question. Did Freud say much about non-verbal communication? Not as much as 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 we do today. I think we know a great deal more about it. He, he did call it the talking cure. His the early patients in psychoanalysis thought of it as the talking cure. And if you read Freud's early technical papers, he's very clear that the couch and the session are there to give the opportunity to the patient to talk as much as he or she can about the private contents of his or her mind. So it began very much as as the verbal treatment. That's not to say that Freud didn't look at non-verbal elements. One might say that the analysis of dreams, although dreams are often related to the analyst in a verbal method, uh, they are about often silent pictures that that flash through your mind. So Freud was interested in the nonverbal, but I think we've become uh, very much more so. And uh, colleagues over recent decades have made great strides in working with people who have no capacity to use their voice at all. They, they might, you might have a laryngectomized patient. Uh, you might have a very, very tiny child patient who's not yet linguistically fluent in the way that an older patient is. Or you might have someone suffering from brain damage or disability of some kind who cannot use language in an easy way. And there one has to examine their 
body language, what it is they do in the room, the kinds of pictures they draw. A psychodrama, for example, is a very powerful way of engaging with people who who are linguistically challenged either uh, due to some form of biopathology or due to some form of traumatization that does not allow them free and easy access to words. So we're very good now at engaging with the nonverbal, I'd say much more than Freud. And in that, that is one example of the way, I think, in which we, we keep trying to develop and, and, and make our offering a richer one. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Really interesting session. Thank you, Carol, for introduction and for allowing the museum to host this. And thank you, Brett, for being so intelligent and illuminating, covering so much ground, being so open-minded. I must say that um, if, if people still want to know more about what Brett thinks on psychotherapy, you are a very widely published author. If you put in Brett Carr in Amazon, a lot of books come up, including one which is a very good introductory guide to Sigmund Freud, which um, uh, I enjoyed reading immensely. Thank you very much.